0: And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share
1: of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an
0: ape of genius. OK, our manifesto for today is jean Amery's essay, Resentments. And our art is Andre the II's A Father's Story. Um, Amory's Resentments is from his book At the Mind's Limits, Contemplations by a Survivor on Auschwitz and its Realities. As the title suggests, Amory was a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Austria, born Hans Chime Meyer, uh, fled to Belgium, uh, was active in the resistance, was picked up by the Gestapo, tortured, and then sent on to the camps. And he didn't write about the Holocaust for, for almost 20 years. And when he did, it was less about the the kind of Physical or historical realities—what happened to him—then uh, this kind of really intense tracking of the moral, psychological, and philosophical implications of what Nazism did to individuals. Um, and after the war, he changed his name to Amory. Amarie. Amory's an anagram of Meyer, uh, kind of shedding all of his Germanness. Yeah, he didn't get any recognition as a writer
2: until I think he was um, in his early 50s or his mid-50s mm-hmm. um, when At the Mind's Limits came out, which was the first thing to really establish him as a writer of import. He'd done some, I believe, genre fiction prior to that, and then or what, what he considered to be genre fiction in a self-deprecating way, and one autobiographical work prior to this considered it too late. For him really to make his mark once his opportunity as a writer came. And I think the introduction to the edition of At the Mind's Limits that we have is by Andrew Stiles. Is that how you pronounce it, Phil? Do you know? No idea. Okay, but that's uh, it, the introduction compares him and Primo Levi, another Holocaust survivor, writer, uh, writer of a very different philosophical outlook. The reductive comparison between them is uh, posits Levy as a a figure of hope and Amory as a a figure of despair, though I don't think that's doing justice to either one of them actually. But there was some interesting, uh, an interesting tension and relationship between them, both as survivors and as writers. This is the first I'd heard of Amory when you sent this to me. I'd never read anything. Actually, I'd heard of him prior to this. I'm trying to remember uh, where from. Uh, But this is the first I'd read of his. And uh, out of this collection, at the mind's limits, the essay that we're reading is Resentments, which I think is the penultimate essay in the book. And it is... I think you could describe it as a personal moral justification of resentment, the moral necessity
0: of resentment. Is that a fair characterization, you think? Yes. So his his. in, in the essay, he says, my personal task is to justify a psychic condition that has been condemned by moralists and psychologists alike. The former regarded as a taint, the latter as a kind of sickness. I must acknowledge it, bear the social taint, and first accept the sickness as an integrating part of my personality and then legitimize it. And that psychic condition is resentment. And, you know, the essay, it's, it's, it's really interesting. The essay begins... Um, Sometimes it happens that in the summer I travel through a thriving land. It is hardly necessary to tell the model cleanliness cleanliness of its large cities, of its idyllic towns and villages, to point out the quality of the goods to be brought there, the unfailing perfection of its handicrafts, or the impressive combination of cosmopolitan modernity and wistful historical consciousness that is evidenced everywhere. And he goes on, you know, describing this place, talking about how statistics show that the man on the street is faring well. And then... Um, you know, he admits, I feel uncomfortable in this peaceful, lovely land inhabited by hard-working, efficient, and modern people. The reader has already guessed why. I belong to that fortunately slowly disappearing species of those who, by general agreement, are called the victims of Nazism. Um, and he is trying to describe this feeling that arises as he goes through you know, Germany in the sixties, when it is recovered, when it is, you know, once more, a, you know, thriving member of, of the international community and doing well, uh, and, and how, and he points out those feelings are very, very different than the feelings that he had right after the war, right. That he, he didn't feel resentment towards Germany then because Germany had been crushed, right. Germany um, had been
2: crushed, and he momentarily had been almost exalted. He, as a a victim, survivor, found himself yeah. briefly, you know, ever so briefly, he describes it. I, I don't have the exact phrase in
0: front of me, but as... It, it's as, on page 64. Uh, yeah. Uh,
2: uh, feeling himself a part of a kind of world feeling that mm-hmm. he and the this moral spirit of the times were, however briefly, in harmony. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, that he was, you know, this had this unprecedented social and moral status, right? Uh, and that uh, those who had tortured me and turned me into a bug were themselves an abomination to the victorious camp. Um, and so, and he says, not only not national socialism, Germany was the object of a general feeling that before our eyes crystallized from hate into contempt um and then with every passing year because that's immediately after
2: the war at right. the mind's limits is published in 1966 with every passing year germany and national socialism move further and further apart um and the one becomes you know a nightmare from the the real history of germany that it becomes an abomination which may need to be preserved but is preserved as an example of a kind of catastrophic anomaly uh, rather yeah. than a, an essential integral part of German history. And for him, the less that period is seen as both an abomination and a true example of uh, the culmination of a history, uh, the less – the less. Um, he feels he can accept the, the pronouncement of the world uh, and, and the world wants to move on as it always does.
0: Right. And, and, and it's also important to him to talk about collective guilt, right? Um, and, he know, you know, he knows that 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 makes people uncomfortable, but he also, you know, for himself – Uh, There's a bit where he says, I I also could not rid myself of the sight of the Germans on a small passenger platform where, from the cattle cars of our deportation train, the corpses had been unloaded and piled up. Not on a single one of their stony faces was I able to detect an expression of abhorrence. Right. Um, And, you know, he just uh, (laughs) – he's unwilling to – and and I think for good reason, sort of feel as though, you know, justice has been done, or that a real kind of full accounting of the crimes has happened, or that, um, you know, uh, that 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 people have acknowledged the extent to which there was, um, I think. Uh, whether passive or active acceptance of, uh, the Nazi regime, um, and the kind of uh, collected guilt that implies. Uh, and yet, you know, in the 1960s, you know, we're supposed to move on and consider, you know, this a very different nation, um, not hold on to that guilt. Right. Um, and we're
2: also, we're not supposed to visit the sins of the fathers upon the sons. And, you know, there's a, deliberate perversity I think or a deliberate provocation in a Jewish Holocaust survivor invoking collective guilt as uh necess- necessary as an an essential part of uh, a moral uh, moral reckoning he knows what he's doing there and you know yeah on the one hand, as you mentioned, he's removing himself from his own Germanness. He changes his name. I think uh you gave the name as Heim Meyer. alternate pronunciation would be Chaim Meyer uh, yeah, but he winds up as jean amory he He wants to move on he doesn't want to allow Germans to move on, and that includes um the sons of the uh, nazis and and their sons potentially, and he says that the reason for this is because he believes that there is a quantifiable aspect to the deeds of the individuals and and what he 's really doing is that he 's saying there is such a thing as germanness actually um and that germanness exists as in some sense the sum of the germans who went up uh, or or who made up the actions of germany and uh and i think he he must know that this is uh is this is going to come off as a kind of he clearly knows this is going to come off as a, a primitive uh you know abrahamic vengeance sort of morality yeah um
0: the, it, it it's it's uh he, he even he quotes a um uh a student right and he talks about yeah He, he, he you mentioned abrahamic uh, morality he says only stagnant old testament barbaric Hate could come dragging its burden and want to load it onto the shoulders of innocent Ger- German youth. Right To accuse the young would be just too inhuman, according to universal concepts, also unhistorical. And then he quotes uh, a letter from a, he says, Obviously young man from Castle who eloquently expresses the displeasure of the new German generations at the haters and the resentful, who, since they are in every respect out of date, are also bad. This young man writes, we are finally sick and tired of hearing again and again that our fathers killed six million Jews. How many innocent women and children did the Americans murder with their bombings? How many Boers did the British murder in the Boer War? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, this, this sentiment he suggests the entire world really does understand that they, that they um, you know, that, that the, the, the future generations represent, well, the future Right. And that is um, something that they value more than than someone holding on to his resentments, which he which he says, you know, when you do that, it it nails every one of us upon the cross of our ruined past.
2: Yeah, that's good. Keep that in mind. It nails every one of us on the cross of our ruined past because he comes back to that. um, He comes back to that image of the figure, uh, the figure nailed to something at the end. If there is a definitive accounting of resentment in the modern philosophical tradition, really if there's a – the person who makes resentment – there are two people really who make resentment central to the understanding of the modern philosophical spiritual
0: condition, one is Nietzsche and the other is Scheller. And this is a – And by the way, the the original title uh, of of this in, in German was Beyond Guilt and Atonement. Right. Right.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. A clear calling out to to the Nietzschean accounting. But but that that is um, to summarize it. It's an idea in the Nietzschean version that resentment is a form of weakness and it's a a version of slave morality in which the weaker party displaces their own weakness, their own, fa- their own failures onto the world outside of them. So rather than conquering themselves, rather than manifesting the full conquering spirit of their will, they take their failures and project the failures out into the world as a, a kind of punishment. So they create a moral structure in which they can punish others For their own shortcomings. This is a kind of crude uh, version of the Nietzschean idea of slave morality. And actually, I think the best rendering uh, of this comes not from Nietzsche, but of Scheller, the best single line on resentment, which he calls the evil secretion in a sealed vessel of prolonged impotence. (laughs) um which is so true i mean you hear that yeah. it's you're locked inside your own infirmity and it creates a tremendous rage more you know you're more uh more agitated by your inability to visit that rage on the proper objects of the rage So you feel both your infirmity and the rage more, you know, it's, it's the feeling both of the terrible impotence and of the, the inability to punish those who you blame for the impotence. That's the kind of Nietzschean Scheller
0: version, but yeah. And he quotes, he quotes the genealogy of morals, uh, in, in the essay where Nietzsche says that, um, Resentment defines such creatures who are uh, denied genuine reaction, that of the deed, and who compensate for it through an imaginary revenge. The resentful person is neither sincere, nor naive, nor honest, and forthright with himself. His soul squints. His mind loves hiding places and back doors. Everything concealed gives him the feeling that it is his world, his security, his bomb. And then um, Amory writes, thus spake the man who dreamed of the synthesis of the brute with the superman. He must be answered by those who were witness who witnessed the union of the brute with the subhuman. They were present as victims when a certain humankind joyously celebrated. Um, and but for and and it's interesting later in the essay he sort of he um, he does actually in some ways agree uh, with with Nietzsche. Um, because he, he says you know, that any true morality is a morality for the losers, right? Um, uh. Yeah,
2: that's right. He says that it's a morality for the losers, but by that he means that – what he means is that the only moral system is one which recognizes – not that there are winners and losers necessarily, but that there are victims and oppressors. For nature, mm-hmm. there are no victims and oppressors, right? And, and what Amory is saying is that in a purely physical accounting, in a purely physicalist or, or materialist accounting of existence where there are only clashing wills and clashing agencies, there is no oppressor and oppressed. There is only victor and vanquished. The moment we say that there is an injustice done to somebody, we're saying that there's a morality because it's the morality that produces the injustice, that makes of it something other than mere conquest or, or a mere competition between forces, unequal forces.
0: Well I was just say and, and, and the truth lies. I mean, we talked earlier about you know collective guilt and collective crime, but the truth, for him, the moral truth, lies with the individual sufferer, right? Um, And there's a bit where he says, you know, he he says, I admit in deliberating a problem that I am biased. I still know that I'm captive of the moral truth of the conflict. The atrocity as atrocity has no objective character, right? Um, uh, And then he, a little bit later down in the essay, he says, the Flemish SS man was who, inspired by his German masters, beat me on the head with a shovel handle whenever I didn't work fast enough, felt the tool to be an extension of his hand and the blows to be emanations of his psychophysical dynamics. Only I possessed, and still possessed, the moral truth of the blows that even today roar in my skull. And for that reason, I am more entitled to judge, not only more than the culprit, but also more than society, which thinks only about its continued existence.
2: Yeah. Okay. So what's the, what is the, the actual basis for that though, right? Because he's not just making an appeal to authority. He's not saying that I as victim, because I am the victim, that it is my victimhood that grants me the authority. He's saying that in that victimhood exists something. And the, the way he explains this is in terms of time, actually, and the difference between uh, biological reality and another kind of reality. And I'm going yeah. to read from the passage where he lays this out because the explication of it is more than just a, a moral claim. It's a logical claim. And he says, whoever lazily and cheaply forgives subjugates himself to the social and biological time sense which is also called the natural one. Natural consciousness of time actually is rooted in the physiological process of wound healing and becomes part of the social conception of reality. But precisely for this reason, it is not only extra-moral, but also anti-moral in character. Man has the right and the privilege to declare himself to be in disagreement with every natural occurrence including the biological healing that time brings about. What happened, happened. This sentence is just as true as it is hostile to morals and intellect. The moral power to resist contains the protest, the revolt against reality, which is rational only as long as it is moral. The moral person demands annulment of time. In the particular case under question, by nailing the criminal to his deed.
0: When we're guilty, we don't pursue dreams. We don't believe to overcome challenges. We get stuck. This is why the enemy works overtime in this area. He knows guilt will keep you from your destiny. So just as the, uh, oh, uh, but there's one more line which I think is important. Yeah, good. Thereby. And through a moral turning back of the clock, the latter can join his victim as a fellow human being, right? That's right. And, yeah. and uh, at another point in the essay, he talks about Waj again, um, uh, when and the moment when Waj stood before the firing squad, right? Um, and how <laughs> that was the moment when was uh, was uh, sort of was kind of brought back to the time of his atrocity, right? Um, and how, you know, in his uh, in his experience of what happened to him, uh, one of the things that was kind of central was loneliness. and there's a there's a kind of uh, interesting way in which, You know, there's there's collective guilt. But then the experience of atrocity is this intensely individual thing. Right. Um, Yeah, not even individual, you know, because
2: you're isolating thing because he's made a bug. Yeah. You know, it's the loneliness of being dehumanized, the the loneliness of being a bug
0: among, you know, human tormentors. Right, this, this is this is the bit on Waj. When Waj stood before the firing squad, he experienced the moral truth of his crimes. At that moment, he was with me, and I was no longer alone with the shovel handle. I would like to believe that at the instant of his execution, he wanted exactly as much as I to turn back time to undo what had been done. When they led him to the place of execution, the anti-man had once again become a fellow man. Now, um... I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting take, right? That that is the way, that is the moment when, when the kind of loneliness of him with the shovel handle is broken, right? Is in this moment of execution.
2: Yeah. Though I don't understand necessarily why the joining together of victim and oppressor accomplishes a moral act. I understand how it accomplishes uh, revenge of a sort and even a kind of uh, ethical symmetry or um, perhaps a spiritual symmetry of sorts. But I don't know that I understand necessarily that that's what's moral about it. I mean part of what Amri is insisting on here is that the moral dimension resides not just with the victim but with the individual and that the – the, you know, the communal justice. There's collective guilt. You know, it's interesting because he insists on this kind of collective guilt, and it's Waj is where he makes the case for the necessity of collective guilt in a moral system. But his idea of justice isn't actually, or excuse me, his idea of morality isn't actually particularly vested in the collective. It's not. Uh, it doesn't take into account, you know, the the moral agency of every individual in the society or the summation of all of their needs and uh, what they're owed. You know, it's it's a, about the wounded party and the morality
0: resides there with the individual. And and a revolt against time, right? I think the the important thing for him there is that, you know, he's watching Germany move forward into the future, right? And He cannot, it is not possible for him as by virtue of what he's been through to let go of the things that he's experienced. Um, and so what he wants is to be joined, um, by by the perpetrators in wanting as much as he does as revolting as much as he does at the fact of what has happened. Right. Um, and so the moment of the firing squad is the moment when that happens. Uh, and, you know, in that in that quote that I had before, where he talks about how society cares only about its, its continued existence. I mean, in some ways, it's that continued existence. Right. Yeah. Let me um, read a bit from that, because he says, only I possessed
2: and still possess the moral truth of the blows that even today roar in my skull. And for that reason, I am more entitled to judge not only more than the culprit, but also more than the society.
0: And, and yet, right, <laughs> in, in literally the next page, um, he swipes aside everybody who doesn't take the same approach he does, right? So uh, he talks about his scant incl- inclination to be conciliatory, more precisely my conviction that loudly proclaimed... Readiness for reconciliation by Nazi victims can only be either insanity or indifference to life or the masochistic conversion of the suppressed genuine demand for revenge. Whoever submerges his individuality in society and is able to comprehend himself only as a function of the so- social, that is, the insensitive and indifferent person, only that person really does forgive. Yeah, but he's also clearly right. There's a – I'm not
2: saying right in an absolute sense, but – The ability to move forward, the ability to render judgment at the scale of the crimes we're talking about here, the ability to let history move forward requires, requires the obliteration of the accounts held by individual victims Um, in all, you know, those have to be tallied in some sort of representative sense that we will make up to the victims through, uh, you know, these payments of reparations that are some sort of crude tallying. But in order to move forward, in order to achieve any kind of reconciliation, you have to do an injustice to particular – to to particular – debts, moral debts, you have to do an injustice to particular victims. Let's say you have to be willing to say, I mean, this is, this is what any kind of historical reconciliation requires. It requires saying that an individual victim insisting that they won't forgive does not trump the demand for a a higher justice and reconciliation that It doesn't matter, ultimately, whether the individual forgives or not. What matters is whether some sort of equation has been reached in which the aggressors are forced to pay enough that people broadly can agree that we can move on now.
1: I believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I think if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. If someone takes something, they're not just a thief. And we haven't done a very good job of talking about that. And for children in particular, I think it's an important narrative because when you're a teenager, a young person and you make a mistake, you can feel like your life is over mm. because of that mistake. And if we can get children to be more compassionate toward people who fall down and more forgiving of themselves when they make mistakes, I just think we build a healthier, more compassionate, uh, more uh, caring community I'm worried about the anger and the menace uh, yeah. that we put, impose mm-hmm. on children. We're constantly threatening kids in schools. We have teachers that sometimes talk like correctional officers yes. and principals who talk like wardens. Yeah. And we're not helping kids be hopeful about what they can achieve. And for me, that's critical because I'm really persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Yeah. The...
0: the you see the the those photos it was in the new york times magazine a while back portraits of reconciliation uh from the rwanda genocide i'm not sure it's these um uh this photographer peter uh, hugo done a lot of work in in rwanda and think 20 years after he had worked with this nonprofit that brought groups of hutus and tutsis together and it offered some counseling and then over the course of months uh, it facilitated the perpetrator's formal request for forgiveness, right? Uh, which weren't always granted, but when they were, uh, you know, the perpetrator and his family and friends would bring offerings of food or banana beer and seal the accord with singing and dancing. And the, the photographer took a series of shots of, you know, victims and perpetrators uh, talking about, you know, what they'd done, the act of forgiveness, why they came. Um, and it's it's an interesting um, series of photos. Uh, it also, you know, generated some kind of angry backlash from people who are arguing, you know, these aren't just a, a, a you know, reconciliation is not just a, you know, personal act. Uh, there's a, a a blog post in Africa as a country, you know, attacking attacking the these fo- uh, photographs because it, you know, holds up this kind of Christian ideal of of forgiveness and moving forward uh, in a place where you know, there hasn't been any real justice where there was, you know, tremendously widespread um uh you know atrocities, uh frequently much worse than the sorts of things that are, you know, listed in, in, in the portraits of reconciliation. And that, you know, for some people, uh, you know, forgiveness is this is kind of a social necessity, right? Because they're living next to their perpetrators. Um and actually when um when Dylan Roof um, shot a, a group of people at a black church, yeah, yeah uh, to try and ignite a race war, um, you know, uh, Roxanne Gay made sort of a similar point in this piece that she wrote called I Don't Forgive uh, Dylan Roof. Uh, And she she wrote, the call for forgiveness is a painfully familiar refrain when black people suffer. White people embrace narratives about forgiveness so they can pretend the world is a fairer place than it actually is. And that racism is merely a vestige of a painful past instead of this indelible part of our present. Black people forgive because we need to survive. Right?
2: Yeah. What you're leaving Um, out there, though, is that Gay, I think, was responding in part to the forgiveness offered by uh, the families families of the church. Yeah. So it wasn't... um, it wasn't a, a statement made in the abstract or in, in response exclusively or necessarily to, uh, you know, the broader societal calls. It was specifically commendation offered to the generosity of spirit exhibited by those family members. Yeah. Yeah. Or what was taken as generosity of spirit, you know. Look, I don't think a family member in that case is under any obligation to forgive. Nor do I think that it's necessarily the just thing that they forgive.
0: What's interesting in that case? Well, I don't think justice sort of necessarily has to do with. I mean, justice and forgiveness and mercy are kind of different things, right? Like, so, you know, Derrida has this whole bit on forgiveness and, and gift giving anything sort of, you know, forgiveness can only happen when there's, um, uh, when you're forgiving the unforgivable, uh, cause otherwise you're doing it for sort of a kind of series of goals, right. Rather than, than forgiveness and, and, um, that, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that happens at, at you know, um, at a remove from questions of, of kind of strict justice. Uh, and actually Amari at one point in this, in this essay, he points out that, um, uh, atonement, uh, sort of questions of atonement, right. Um, uh, which he says it has only theological meaning and therefore is not relevant to me, right? Um, and that sort of, you know, from these kind of moral considerations, the question of, of, of atonement is sort of something uh, happening at a, at, a, at a different register that doesn't doesn't kind of, just doesn't function for him. And, and, and for the, you know, the people in that church, uh, right? The forgiveness is, was clearly, I think, tied up with their religious commitments.
2: So there are three separate dimensions here that intersect as planes intersect, not at a single point, but uh, I think across a field. And one is justice, one is morality, in Amory's sense of morality. And the last is atonement. Justice is a, in the sense of meeting out justice, a communal decision, a communal obligation. Uh, You know, justice is a, a system of Law, legal ethics. Um, in the case of the, you know, the the Dylan Roof shooting, justice required punishment of Dylan Roof. It had little to do with what the the victims' families offered. Yeah, the victims' families. Uh, if you take Amory's position. Given that they were the the victims' families and the survivors, since they were the people who had to live with the injury, morality would have resided with them. the The moral compulsion Except was he theirs. He that
0: they were insane or indifferent to life, or masochistically conversion, you know, converting a suppressed, genuine demi- de- desire for revenge. I mean, that's what he accuses his fellow Holocaust survivors of. I'm
2: not say that one more
0: time. So amari accuses his fellow Holocaust survivors who, you know, proclaim readiness for reconciliation as being either insane or indifferent to life. That's right. Or, yes.
2: Yeah. But the, um, the last thing is um, – I, I hear what you're saying. I'll come back to that in a second. The last thing is atonement. You know, Yom Kippur was two days ago. It's the day of atonement for Jews. The obligation – for Jews during Yom Kippur is to offer forgiveness to a party that you have injured. So if you feel yourself to have sinned against somebody, you have to try to get, uh, you have to apologize, essentially. Um, they are not under any obligation to you, uh, to relieve you, uh, of your offense against them. But you're under an obligation to them to actually atone for that atonement to be recognized by God. You're under the obligation to apologize three times, right? You apologize the first time they don't accept it. You're under an obligation to apologize two more times. There is a moral obligation that you owe, which is another way of nailing the criminal to his deed, actually. It's to say that you can't move on until you have resided in the injustice you have done at some length. You have to dwell there because if you attempt to offer a, a fleeting or perfunctory apology and it's not accepted, you're not released. You're, you're kept there. You have to stay there, sure. not forever forever. But at some
0: length. Do, do, do you – are you a G.K. Chesterton fan?
2: <laughs> you know, I like uh, Chesterton. I've read a bunch of Chesterton. I like Chesterton. I can't think of Chesterton separately from the, like, Twitter – Catholic Twitter reactionaries these days. So <laughs> that's who I associate him <laughs> most with these
0: days. But uh, yeah. But yes – so he's got a story, um, one of his Father Brown stories is this priest who um, solves crimes. <laughs> uh, and there's like this sort of um, uh, nobleman who all the people love who, uh, you know, killed his kind of scoundrel brother uh, in a duel. And like 30 years later, he comes back to his hometown. He's racked by guilt. And all the, all the people just want to forgive him, you know. And the priest is willing to forgive him, you know, as long as he you know, penance and self-reflection. Um, and, uh, and, you know, all the, all the people think that the priest is just, is not being, you know, not being a empathetic, compassionate soul. Um, and then later everybody finds out that actually, uh, it wasn't that the, 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 nobleman they all loved, uh, killed his brother. It was the scoundrel who killed you know, the, the well-loved guy and stole his identity, right? And then ran away for 30 years. Uh, and now everybody in the town wants to see him burned alive. And the priest, just as before, says like, no, he can, be, he can be forgiven as long as he goes through, you know, self-reflection, penance. And he tells them, it seems to me that you only pardon the sins that you don't really think sinful. You only forgive criminals when they commit what you don't regard as crimes, but rather as convention. Give a conventional duel just as you forgive a conventional divorce. You forgive because there isn't anything to be forgiven. Um, And I think there's, there's this kind of like (laughs) social forgiveness, right? Which is often um, less about a real consideration of questions of justice and mercy than with whatever makes the polity happy and kind of keeps it moving on, right? And then there's this sort of much more rigorous notion of of what what forgiveness is is conditional on. Um, and for Homme Marie, you know, I think it seems that society is really willing to forgive and forget, but it's not real forgiveness. It's just they want to not have to dwell on such things in the way that he has to because he experienced it yeah you know Amri, in a
2: sense is up against something even more powerful than the implacable inertia of the polity he's up against time and history yeah. and explicitly so because he's saying that the The moral claim is the claim that's rooted in the past. What resentment is, is an unwillingness to move on. You know, resentment is not, as Nietzsche would have it, the revenge of the weak upon the strong. Um, It's actually not that at all. He's saying that the purpose of resentment, I, I thought about this, I think the purpose of resentment can be stated as simply as this. It exists to preserve a moral dimension to action that time itself would otherwise naturally obliterate. It's just the injury of the victims. It's just the crime demanding a reckoning, you know, an echo through time of the original crime. And what Amory recognizes is that the polity moves on not only because it sees itself You know, it it believes that it's in its interest to move on or because a false sense of justice wants it to move on because it's socially convenient in a kind of utilitarian reckoning to forgive the Germans so that they can go back to being productive, contributing members of Europe. It's that time is the ultimate implacable amorality, that history buries everything that no yeah. time is no crime is too great; that it won't be subsumed in, uh, you know, the, the trivia that follows it. That everything will be obliterated, and so, so all that remains then is the accounting of the crime. The crime itself, it it, it will fall away to nothing once the the. Those who are stuck in the moment of the crime—that is, those who experienced the crime—release it; it it itself will disappear. So, all that lasts then is the 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 lashing to the crime, the act of um, of of fixing oneself to the crime. So this this brings up a question of: Does this mean, you know? Omri says that he believes in collective guilt and he makes uh, a case for collective guilt. But is it heritable also in a sense? Mm-hmm. You know, clearly it is heritable. He, the crime itself is heritable in that it, it belongs to a people, to their history, and that as long as they continue to live within that history, then they are part of the crimes that were committed Um But what about the the moral dimension? Uh, If the crime is heritable, is the injury heritable also? This gets into what this would look like in practice, but this is is in a sense you're dealing not only with somebody who is demanding and accounting for the horrible injustice done to them. It's also somebody... he kills himself not that long after this is written, but it's also somebody recognizing that there aren't that many like him who are going to insist on the kind yeah. of an accounting that he's insisting on. And soon there won't be any at all. And then what will be left of the demand for, uh,
0: demand for morality? Well, that's, I mean, that's how he ends is it's sort of like, he, he kind of, he knows it's a dead end, right? And he says, the fears of Nietzsche and Scheller actually were not warranted. Our slave morality will not triumph. Our resentments, emotional sources of every genuine morality, which was always a morality for the losers, have little or no chance at all to make the evil work of the overwhelmers bitter for them. Uh, and then he says, soon we must and will be finished. Until that time has come, we request of those whose peace is disturbed by our grudge that they be patient. Right? And you know, one thing you know, I mentioned, we were talking in the last episode about patriotism in one sense of oneself as a broader collective. And I read that bit from, um, Vasily Grossman where he's going through this town that has been destroyed where all the, you know, all the Jews have been killed. and It's just, there's nothing left. And, and he's talking not only about the individual people who were killed, but also about the, the community sort of moving forward into time, right? That, that genocide is, um, you know, is, is sort of more than just, um, Kind of contained in the numbers of the dead, or kind of stacked accumulation of individual lives snuffed out, but also in this kind of broader collective that moves forward. And there's a there's an interesting um, take on Amory from uh, Fred Alford, um, where he writes Amory's ethics of, res- of uh, refusal. ...fails to offer any guidance for subsequent generations because he doesn't seem to believe in subsequent generations. He doesn't deny them or disbelieve in them. Subsequent generations simply do not enter into his calculations. As denizens of liberal individualistic societies, it's easy to overlook this. Omri's on-aging is a brave confrontation with death. At the mind's limits is a brave refusal to forgive and forget. Or so it might seem in the lands of liberalism triumphant, no longer confined to the West." However, when one recalls that the mark of the Holocaust is that it was not directed at individuals, but a genus, uh, and that aging only makes sense in terms of the succession of generations, and one realizes that the central flaw in both books is the same, Omri does not see that if the Holocaust was a crime against generations, indeed the very existence of generations, then the death that is the result of natural aging is proper and necessary so that the generations continue to resist the genocides of yesterday and today. It is necessarily to continually assert the power of life over death. This is not the same thing as locating all value in the individual. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I'm looking at this passage from Amiri. Future is obviously a value concept. What will be tomorrow is more valuable than what was yesterday. That is how the natural feeling for time will have it. So he knows that what he's doing is unnatural, yeah. uh, and it is in its unnaturalness that the moral claim resides, right? Yeah. And so let's let's we're already there. So let's get to the what would this look like in practice? Because practically, that's already what we're talking about. Well, he starts to discuss this a bit, though you get the sense he doesn't really mean it uh, when he says. Now, he's talking here, uh, well, actually, I'll just read it. I was going to say he's talking about a a Thomas Mann quote, but I'll read the Thomas Mann quote. Thomas Mann once expressed this in a letter. It may be superstition, he wrote to Walter Van Malo, but in my eyes, the books that could be printed in Germany between 1933 and 1945 are less than worthless, and one ought not to touch them. An odor of blood and disgrace clings to them. They should all be reduced to pulp. That's the end of the Mond quote, and then Amory picks up. The spiritual reduction to pulp by the German people, not only of the books, but of everything that was carried out in those 12 years, would be the negation of the negation, a highly positive, a redeeming act. Only through it would our resentment be subjectively pacified and have become objectively unnecessary. So in order to reconcile the claim of resentment, all that need happen is that the 12 years of German history, the Hitler years, be reduced to pulp. To pulp them, of course, would obliterate not only the crime, but the claim to the crime. So it, it's not clear, you know, he he's not saying this as if he thinks that pulping history is a, a project that anyone is about to embark on anytime soon and he's not saying it is a, a literal project but it's not clear how you would how you would retain the morality i guess he's saying that the the morality which lives with the resentment would no longer be necessary if you were to pulp that history though if you were to pulp that history how would you prevent it from happening again? I mean, in a sense, it's only by the preservation of that history that you protect against its recurrence.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I don't think he's, he's suggesting you erase all, all history of the deed. Um, well what is he saying? He's saying I I I mean this is the, the Spiritual I'm not, I'm not reduction sure. to pulp. Yeah. Of everything that happened, yeah, during those twelve years. I I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what that looks in like in practice. I mean it's it's difficult to say what it looks like in practice. The only the, the only practical example that he gives you is Laws well, facing the S the SS squad, right? Uh, sorry, not the SS squad, the firing squad, right? Um, and was wanting to erase the history that that brought him to that point. Um, and so I think, you know, it would be, <laughs> it would be, someone wanting as much as someone facing a firing squad for their deeds. Um, it would be the entire. German people wanting as much as Wash perhaps wanted history to become unwound for them to want those twelve years to become unwound and do whatever it was necessary um, kind of whatever practical steps were necessary yeah, I think there are no practical steps and the- that's, i think that's sort of the problem right and and it's it's um, and it and it, and, it and, and and again the fact that he brings in you know the young who want to move past this kind of makes it makes it even more difficult to to say what exactly that means yeah, there can be no
2: justice for crimes like this there's nothing yeah. but the individual conscience which seeks to bind to itself the the consciences of other individuals the, the doers of crimes but ultimately the, there's no collective justice for the collective crimes here Um, there is the man who you know was tortured in Auschwitz and in Buchenwald saying I'm not going to go along with this pageantry of reconciliation I'm not going to pretend that uh, that there is a, a kind of spiritual cleansing that can be accomplished, that doesn't require, in that cleansing, the bleaching out of the crimes, that doesn't require, in that cleansing, the silencing of the victims. He's saying that you can either have your justice or you can have the voice of the victims. And when he tries to, to, to suggest a way in which this might be practically accomplished in the world, other than just pulping German history. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's not believable. It doesn't, it doesn't even have the, the full authority of his own conscience
0: behind it really. Yeah. Cause he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't really believe it either. It's just, it's, it's, I think he, it's kind of just an impossible situation that he's in and that he can't feels it would be unethical to let go of. And yet there's sort of nowhere to go, which is why it ends with him just saying, well, you know, eventually we're all going to die. And, you know future generations won't have to worry about it anymore. It's an
2: impossible situation. And for him, what matters is to hold on to his resentments and to not be conned out of them. You know, you know the, the, yeah. the interesting kind of counterpoint with the Nietzschean slave morality idea is that it's the slave morality in a sense, or it's the herd morality rather that wants him to relinquish his resentments right and, yeah, and, exactly. and he, as a he's he's refusing to go along with the 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 social prohibition against holding on to his resentments. He's practicing a unrepentant individual conscience, uh, you know, demanding that his resentments be operative in the world, be answered for. Um you know if you think about how does this play out i mean it's uh you know it's a it's a touchy subject to say the least, right how does the crime of the holocaust get get weighed get accounted for uh, through a number of ways one is obviously the nuremberg trials one is uh in terms of reparations, there's a whole host of people who would suggest that um, there was a a great deal of Jewish resentment after the Holocaust and that Jewish resentment became its own kind of political and ethical principle. And There are anti-Semites who say that. There are Jews who say that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And they say it sometimes in different ways and sometimes they say it in very similar ways. But those resentments, as they're practiced, are not at all what Amory what is talking about, because Amri isn't trying to, to leverage concessions out of anybody. Amory is trying to prevent criminals from escaping their crimes. Um, and so the last thing he's asking for is payouts. The last thing he's asking for is a kind of ritualistic approach. To the Holocaust, a a ceremonial approach that would allow victim and victimizer to join together in some sort of ameliorative practice. That's the opposite in spirit of what he's talking about. Um, you know, and look, it's it's interesting. There's uh, if you look at the the way Israel dealt with the Holocaust. There's uh, you know, it's it's interesting in regards to this. There's a kind of new fashionable um soviet propaganda element of the hard left in the west um that pushes a, a what what began as a, a you know kind of soviet messaging campaign in the early 70s that Zionism is really uh, born out of collusion with Nazism. So this is the founding myth uh, that a, a part of the hard left that's more prominent in Europe than it is in America, but that's becoming more prominent in America. This is their, Mm. the founding sin of Israel, that the Zionists were the real Nazis, not just in their treatment of the Palestinians, not just in Israel's modern treatment of the Palestinians, but that Israel was created through collusion with Zionism, which is, you know, uh, an absurdly ahistorical bit of Soviet propaganda, but that hasn't stopped many people from uh, disgracing themselves by parroting it.
0: He mentions that specifically in the reissue. Did you read the, the preface to the reissue to the uh, 1977 I issue? Okay, so there's a bit where he says, I was not really surprised when I learned that at a rally for the Palestinians in a large German city, not only was Zionism, whatever one may understand by this political term, condemned as a global plague, but also the agitated young anti-fascists made their sentiments known through the vigorous cry, Death to the Jewish People. We're used to that. We had the chance to observe how the word became flesh and how this incarnated word finally led to heaps of cadavers. Once again, people are playing with the fire that dug a grave in the air for so many. I sound the fire alarm.
2: Say that's from uh that's his preface? That's to, his preface
0: uh, to the nineteen seventy-seven
2: hmm, issue. A corollary to the to this pernicious uh pernicious bit of propaganda about Israel is this Nazi-Zionist collusion, which started off as literal Soviet propaganda. The corollary to this is the idea that uh, in its early years in particular, Israel achieved its place in the world by leveraging guilt over the Holocaust, essentially by holding the world hostage to the memory of the Holocaust. In truth, inside Israel in particular, there was uh, an active... uh, campaign of suppression might be too strong, but a, a desire among the national political leadership not to incorporate the Holocaust into the founding myth because they didn't want, uh, an idea of Jews as victims. They didn't want, uh, young Israelis, you know, for political reasons, because they were trying to inculcate this new, uh, heroic myth of, uh, you know, muscular Zionist youth, um, but they, they actively tried to uh, limit discussion of the Holocaust as a kind of founding element, um, you know, insofar as the Holocaust worked its way into, uh, into the, the early mythos. In Israel, it was, you know, will be, uh, you know, the, the strength here will prevent something like this from ever happening again. But the idea of holding on to resentments in the way that Amory is describing as a moral act, would have been antithetical uh, to almost all of the early leaders in Israel, and that's the, you know, laborite left and the Jabotinsky right both. Um, Neither one of them would have found this an acceptable moral framework, for what it's worth, um,
0: interesting to think about. Well, We've discussed the Amory quite a bit. I mean it's a it's a, it's a rich that the, the book is it's a slender little book. It doesn't take long to read, but it's um it's quite something. Um should we move on to uh, the Debuse, I think is pronounced. Yeah, let's go. All right. Andre Debuse the uh, Second, from a Louisiana Cajun Irish family, Catholic. Uh I think this is probably the most Catholic thing I've I've made you read, Jake. Um, uh, spent six years in the Marine Corps. Uh, there were uh, a lot of tragedies in his life. Um, uh, his daughter was raped uh, at one point, uh, his, uh, uh, which uh, changed him. Uh, his, his son is also a writer, good writer, uh, nice guy, Audre uh, Debuse the, the third. Uh, said that uh, immediately after Suzanne's rape had done something to our father. Almost immediately after it, he drove to the Hoverfield police station and applied for a license to carry. Now he owned a silver snub nose 38 he had kept unloaded in one of the desk drawers. When he went out to dinner with his friends or wives, he carried it in a shadow holster on his belt and he covered it with his shirt or vest. He seemed to talk about self-defense more than I'd ever heard him talk about it before. Uh, and then, uh, he did that until, uh... Uh, shot a guy who was arguing uh, drunkenly with his son. Uh, later, he was. You know, Debus shot a guy. Almost. Almost. almost and then he. Right. And then he. Uh, well, I mean, I've almost it wasn't a good, shot good a idea guy there. arguing with my son. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was in a serious car accident. And he had stopped to help some some people on uh, on the side of the road, and then this car swerved and hit them, killing one of the people he was with, and then uh Debus Shoved the other, uh, other, uh, shoved the woman out of the way, and he ended up, uh, losing, uh, losing a leg. Uh, both of his legs were crushed. He ultimately, had, you know, one of them was amputated above the knee. Uh, had a, you know, years of kind of painful surgery, physical therapy, um, and, you know, ultimate in- infections. Ultimately, you know, was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Um, uh, and his private, in- primarily known for his, um, short fiction, uh, of which this is, this is one story. That's, uh,
2: that's a hell of a setup. Okay. A father's story. I I think the way i describe it is there is a, uh, protagonist, Luke Ripley. And he tells you that in the first line, which is my name is Luke Ripley. And here is what I call my life, which is a good opening line. Um, it's the first two thirds are an interior monologue, and it's Ripley telling you about his life, telling you about his past, telling you about his relationship to God and to this uh, particular Irish Catholic priest, who's both a friend and who is—he's the confessor. What do you—the priest is the what receiver of his confessions, um, yeah. and he lives on a, a horse ranch. And it's...
0: The the priest is not an Irish Catholic. He's from Canada. He's
2: from Canada, but he's Irish.
0: Um, Doesn't he he tells you that the priest is Irish? Am I wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. He grew up speaking more French than English, so he's different from the Irish priests who abound up here. I do not like to make general statements or even to hold general beliefs about people's blood, but the Irish do seem happiest when they're dealing with misfortune or guilt (laughs) of their own or somebody else's.
2: (laughs) I think the first two-thirds, three-quarters of the story are uh, an interior monologue where this, the protagonist Luke Ripley is describing his life on a horse ranch in his later years, his relationship uh, with a Catholic priest, his relationship with God, uh, his relationship to the act of confession, and as it builds, it, it starts to uh, come out uh, more details about his past come out, he's uh, divorced, he has three sons and one daughter and it unfolds um, mostly in his mind and mostly in terms of his relationship with the facts of his life
0: and with his, uh, spiritual bearing in the world yeah, he sort of considers his spiritual life to be his real life right, um and, uh, and, but through the story of kind of, as you get details about how his marriage fell apart and, you know, his relationship with his, 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 kids, it's clear that, that his Catholicism has played a role with that, particularly in terms of like sexual morality, right?
2: Yes. Very clearly in terms of sexual morality. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let me. Let me, we'll keep going and then I'll come to what threw me off a bit. So without giving away the ending, that opening interiority leads to uh, a final section at the end in which he's confronted first by the physical presence of his daughter in her early 20s and by the fact of her life as a woman, as a sexual creature, which is troubling to him as a father, but doubly so as a Catholic father with these certain the relationship that he has toward sexual morality, which has come out earlier in his discussions about his life after his divorce from his wife and the the relationship that he had with his wife in the final years of their marriage, uh, which he describes, there's a good line in there where he describes basically that they were chased half the month and that it, it drove both of them mad, this kind of schizophrenic marriage in which they were intimates one half the month and estranged from each other physically the other half the month. So his daughter comes to visit. He's confronted by her presence which is disconcerting to him, um, and this kind of fact of her life apart from him—her life as a
0: young woman, right—and she's not, you know, she's not a believer. Uh, you know, sort of Gloria, his wife. Gloria left first, me, then the church, and that was the end of religion for the children. Uh, and Jennifer is an agnostic, though I doubt she would call herself that any more than she would call herself any other name that implied she had made a decision, a choice about existence, death, and God. In truth, she tends to pantheism, a good sign, I think. But not wanting to be a father who tells his children what they ought to believe, I do not say to her that Catholicism includes pantheism, like onions in a stew.
2: Yeah, that's actually uh, a good example of what I found off-putting in the style. (laughs) Okay. Listen, I can't withhold from you, Phil. I have to tell you the truth. Yeah. So... There's a a kind of a a directness uh, to the prose that's very obvious from the first line. My name is Luke Ripley and here's what I call my life. I own a stable of 30 horses and I have young people who teach riding and we board some horses too. So that's a kind of flat, unadorned, direct style, which I quite liked early in the story and he does well and the opening that opening and the the rest of that uh, first page or so really had me you know it doesn't present to you the language isn't a trick of any sort it, it you enter into it immediately he says my name is luke ripley you're not digesting the prose at all it's there's an immediacy to it his name is luke ripley you there's no distance between the language and your uh, understanding of what the language is conveying, the subject of the language. The problem is that the more you get into his religious life, and his spiritual life, the more that directness, the unadorned quality of it starts to feel like an overbearing guilelessness. Like it's trying constantly to impress upon you this, this guilelessness, which doesn't to me feel like it makes sense or is is natural given the degree of spiritual uh, consciousness, maybe torment is the wrong word, but a a degree of moral guilt, a, a spiritual awareness, a, a, a feeling of constant presence before the judgment of God, and so the 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 guileless quality, which in the beginning is direct captured me as a reader starts to feel
0: overbearing uh so, so i love those moments uh, <laughs> um i i think well he's trying to get at this sort of like in between place that the the guy's in um like he's he's sort of externally very practicing catholic he sort of has these complicated feelings about a whole variety of things, most particularly about the, you know, kind of like sexual teachings around birth control, most obviously, right. Um, that, that kind of kept his him and his wife in this difficult space. Uh, there's a bit where he, you know, he talks talks about his relationship to mass, uh, and how, you know, don't think of me as a spiritual man. There's every thought during those 25 minutes is at one with the words of the mass, right. That he goes through every morning. Um, he but says, that, that you know, part is
2: interesting because he's talking there about how important ritual is because ritual presents the action in place of the belief. And he saying, I mean, that's that, actually a great, let, let's, yeah, let's read that line. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, uh,
0: I can receive though the Eucharist and also at mass and at other times, moments and even minutes of contemplation, but I cannot achieve contemplation as some can. And so Having to face and forgive my own failures, I've learned from them both the necessity and wonder of ritual. For ritual allows those who cannot will themselves out of the secular to perform the spiritual, as dancing allows the tongue-tied man a ceremony of love. Yeah. I I felt that a,
2: a character who would think that way would not speak in the way that he did to himself. That's the fundamental um my fundamental break with the piece is that I had a hard time it made me conscious of his voice because it seemed not to fit his thoughts, uh his nature. Too but knowing? I, what's that? Too knowing? Uh too guileless is the word I used before. Too uh too unperturbed, too um too flat and immediate uh, in the telling, Um, Mm -hmm. especially as it built. I got it early on. You know, I understood that early on, but, um, but he's a very interesting character and the story is interesting. And the priest who exists only in his mind, you don't really have any interaction with the priest in the story aside from, or most of your interaction with the priest comes through this character, Luke's, the way that the priest figures in Luke's own, uh, conscience and in his own, uh, relationship, his relationship with himself and his relationship with his own morality. And, um, I thought that was interesting. The place that the story builds to is, uh, is interesting, but I, yeah, I don't know. It, it put some distance between me and what was on the page, this feeling that, um, that you know, the the voice was trying a, a bit too hard.
0: Okay. So, should we talk about what happens in the final third?
2: I, I was avoiding that.
0: I don't know. You tell me. Well, I mean, I feel like we can't really talk about the story. And I think it's the final third that is important in terms of connecting to the So
2: That's true. Uh, Let's say as a rule that if you're going to listen to this podcast, we're going to tell you
0: what happens at the end of the story. We're going to do spoilers, because otherwise you can't really talk about the work. That's right.
2: right. And if that's a problem for you, we understand, but we don't want to hear about it.
0: But it's a short story. It's a great short story, regardless of what Jake just said. He's wrong, and uh, you should just read it.
2: (laughs) You should read it,
0: and I've been wrong plenty of times before. (laughs) Okay, so in the final third of the... Uh, of the story, it switches from this, you know, uh, kind of contemplative slice of life into a narrative, which is his daughter returns home, and she is, you know, hanging out with her friends and so on, and then she comes to him and tells him that she hit somebody with the car. She'd been out drinking; it's late at night. Uh, um, as she's going home, she hits somebody, and then she panics. Instead of going to to get help, or you know, to even find the guy, she just rushes right home. And then he makes the decision not to call the cops or call an ambulance, but to go out and try and find the guy himself. And there's this really intense description, um, where, you know, he drives out and he's on the one hand hoping that, um, you know, he's going to find this guy and the guy's going to be alive or fine. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's a bit where he says, And I threw the cigarette and hope both out the window and prayed that he was alive, while beneath that prayer, a reserve deeper in my heart, another one stirred, that if he were dead, they would not get Jennifer. And he finds the guy, um, and he's trying to see if there's a pulse, and it's this really sort of moment-by-moment, moment intense, um, you know, physical description. I mean, the writing is really... Yeah,
2: that's probably the most vivid writing in the story I I say probably deliberately yeah that is the moment in the story the extended moment when the writing which I think before that had been more contemplative Mm -hmm. uh tranquil might be too strong but contemplative and then here it becomes suddenly intense physically vivid uh and it presses on you the moment presses on
0: you Yeah. And he's, you know, he's feeling the guy for his, you know, for his pulse, you know, different. And, and there's this sort of like, is there a heartbeat? Uh, is there not? Is the heartbeat slipping away even under his fingers? And, and with that is, is his daughter a, a, you know, a killer or not?
2: I said before that, uh, I didn't love this story and, um, you know, you have sort of an immediate reaction to something, but the writing in that section in particular is incredible because that feeling for the heartbeat is so strange and visceral all at once because you feel this sort of ghostly element to it, like, well, he could be... You know, it it communicates the way in which the distance or the, the difference between life and death is something as minuscule... As a heartbeat, this faint murmur, and he's feeling for it. And it might be is he feeling a corpse? Is he feeling a a live man who's slipping away in front of him? Which is not only the difference in his experience and your experience of the moment as a reader, it's also all the difference in his daughter's fate.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, It's just really well done, that portion.
0: And, um, you know, the guy turns out to be dead or. Had just died, just died under his uh, under his uh, hands, and then he goes back, um, and you know, puts his daughter daughter to bed. Um, he tells her, he lies. He tells her there's nothing she could have done, right? Though there's that suspicion that you have, in you know, in the reader's mind, and you're also not sure that maybe if she had immediately called an ambulance. He could have survived. You don't know whether that's true or not, but it's, it's definitely a possibility. And then the next morning, he takes the car and goes to church and deliberately sort of like um, wrecks it a little, like bumps into something in front of people so that people will see that his car has been damaged and think that the, the damage to the car came from this sort of minor accident outside of church. Um, and then after that, uh, it goes back into his sort of relationship with God and the choices that he made and his thinking about things. Right. Um, and how he, he did this for his daughter, but he would not have done it for a son. Right. Um, He doesn't
2: think he'd have done it for his son. This is how he understands it in the moment. Uh, I don't think he knows what he would have done for his son or, or, um, is in a position, particularly then, to be making that kind of statement. But it communicates certainly his own sense of why he has done this for his daughter. Of he's trying to articulate his own motivations, and he he understands his motivations uh, towards protecting his daughter to be fundamentally different than how he would feel obliged to take care of his son. Just to add one thing to what you said a second ago about how he keeps from his daughter the fact that potentially after she had hit this guy, she could have done something. We don't know if he could have done something also. Right. Um, And he doesn't know that. It occurs to him also, while I'm standing here fumbling, groping, I'm letting, maybe I'm letting this man's life slip away. And if I had been less concerned with preserving my daughter, protecting my daughter, and more concerned with I'll do whatever I can to immediately try and help this person if, in fact, they're still alive, we don't know what could have happened. It's an open question.
0: Yeah. So he describes being at church immediately afterwards and having sort of being looked down, you know, having God look at him the way that he had looked at his children, actually, when they were doing something wrong um and of his sort of life after this incident he says i do not feel the peace i once did not with god nor the earth nor anyone in it i have begun to prefer this state to remember with fondness the other one as a period of peace i neither earned nor deserved right um and then the very end of the story is his conversation with with god uh and god pointing out that he's a father too and he sent his son to die um Uh, And he says, you know, and, and if one of my sons, this is the narrator, and if one of my sons had come to me that night, I would have phoned the police and told them to meet us with an ambulance at the top of the hill. And God responds, why, do you love them less? I tell him no. It's not that I love them less, but that I could bear the pain of watching and knowing my son's pain could bear it with pride as they took the whip and nails. But you never had a daughter, and if you had, you could not have borne her passion. So, he says, you love her more than you love me. I love her more than I love truth, than you love in weakness," he says, "as you love me." I say, and I go with an apple or carrot out to the barn, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, which I I very much like.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I know why you like it, and there's something very <laughs> likable about it. Um, <laughs> Mr. Uh, you know, like Southern Marine Tolstoy over here. Um,
0: Southern Marine Tolstoy.
2: There is a kind of. Uh, Simple man in the field, communing with God. Element to it, uh, maybe not in the the hubris of it, but in the. Um, I go out to the field with a, an apple or a carrot. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. Look, there's a lot to like in it. I think uh, I've already made clear what what didn't quite work for me in it, but where it's powerful, it's very powerful. The the,
0: the reason that I paired it with the Amri was because I think that it. It dramatizes in a really interesting way. I mean so the problem with the Amory is it's discounting the future right yeah and absolutely. and and especially you know this sort of sense like if you want to be attached to a kind of communal history, right, which we talked in the last episode about how that's that's kind of a necessity, right you know what do you do with American history? is American history just its crimes? How do you move forward when there's the weight of crimes that you can't like you can't actually. Meaningfully address, right? Um, I and mean, when the only kind of you know thing that that uh, um, you know Omri brings up is is Waj at the firing squad, right? Right. Um, and pulping all of history, you know, how do you move forward? And this is all about you know what he's willing to do for for the future, as expressed in in his relationship with his daughter, with his children, right? Uh, obliterate the crime. The obliterate the claims of the victims. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 he as if they never happened. As if there were no crime at all. Right. Well, for for his daughter, right? Like he sort of takes mm. it upon himself, and he yeah. can't. Uh, he can't even confess it, right? He talks about how he can't confess it to the priest that is, is his best friend. He because, says he doesn't
2: want to burden the priest, right? right. That's the excuse. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. Or force, you know raise the possibility of of coming forward. Um, And you, you know, even as you think he's done wrong, you feel... You feel the the force. I mean, what would you do?
2: Yeah, like I said, I mean, I I would uh, probably cover it up for my daughter and (laughs) let my son go to jail.
0: And, you know, the the kind of... um, but I don't know if
2: that's true. That's what I say now. I, You know, what would I do? I think it would depend in a way that I don't think comes through in the story on how I read the intentions mm-hmm. or the actions of the child involved. If I thought that they had been in a terrible accident that led to, you know, the worst possible consequences, but that this had been a, a kind of, slippage of causality where an otherwise yeah. good innocent person committed a heinous crime i might do as he did and try to erase all existence of that crime and in so doing take the burden of sin upon myself if however i thought that somebody had been testing fate and fate caught up with them i don't know that i could take that same
0: approach yeah yeah the um you know the we talked before about how you know, for Omri, the, poten- the possibility of atonement is only sort of like a—it's—it is a theological value, yeah. right? And that's the kind of traditional Christian response to the paradox that Omri that points out, which is, you know, the claim of the the victim really does seem to be, and you feel the force of it like it should be history stopping, right? Right? And but the the sort of there's kind of an equal claim towards the future, I think, and the the kind of theological Christian interpretation is like. Yeah, like it requires death. So here, God will, you know, suffer and die, and then, you know, live again, right? Yeah. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of how you get out of it. And for Amory, like that—that theological, any kind of theological sense of atonement is just not open to him. It's not something that he believes in. Yeah, you know that. Though there is a kind of theological element in his sort of. Imagining that somehow he's one with Laj at the moment of the
2: that symmetry, the
0: firing squad, right? Which is another point where I'm not quite following him.
2: No, look, the problem with this, um, and it's very challenging, and it, uh, you know, it's it doesn't um, it doesn't make for an easy argument to grapple with because it doesn't proceed along. Uh, familiar premises, but the most basic problem, perhaps, with the Omri is that it doesn't resemble any resentment I've ever known in my life. Mm -hmm. So at the most basic level, what he is describing as resentment is a moral claim that may very well exist, but is entirely unfamiliar to me when I consider the known range of human emotions that I could conceivably associate with resentment, you know, I've never experienced the resentment that was one one thousandth. Now, I have not had a life that was one one millionth as difficult as Amory's life, but I've never experienced a pang of resentment that felt to me uh, truly to resemble the kind of righteous claim to uh, to moral reckoning that he's describing is resentment, I, I don't doubt that that exists, but it's not something I can quite grasp in the, in the kind of known, you know, like in the known uh, range of, of human responses. Yeah. Okay, so what do we, uh, we've said, Phil, so much. Yeah. We've, we've really said a lot here. Everything, really, we've said everything. What are we doing next week? <laughs>
0: What's coming up? <laughs> now that Rents? we've said everything? Yes. Um, we are doing Hannah Arendt's uh, Reflections on Violence. Yes. And, which is excellent and really worth reading. and You can find online. And the art is going to be Frank Miller's uh, Dark Knight Returns. Yes. Frank Miller's uh,
2: Batman classic, The Dark Knight Returns. All right. Looking forward. If I could turn back time If I could find